Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 617 of the podcast and it is Friday the 15th of April 2022 as I record this over Easter weekend. On today's show I'm talking to Jessie Quack about writing craft from big idea to book. We talk about planning, plotting and discovery writing, practical ways to turn an idea into a short story or expand it into a novel, critical voice, developing theme, finding joy in writing, and we also discuss publishing with a small press and Kickstarter for pre-orders. So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing news, well, not so much news as a comment on something. Andy Jassy, Amazon's CEO, delivered his first letter to shareholders this week. And I was reading it and it, there's a lot in there that is interesting to authors from a sort of mindset point of view, which ties into a few things that have been going on recently. So I wanted to pick a few things from the letter. So first of all, so he writes, you need blind faith, but no false hope. And I feel like these are two things that uh, writers have to think about all the time. We have to have blind faith that somehow our books will reach readers, will uh, will achieve what we want to with the book we're writing. But we can't have false hope that (laughs) many of us do when we start out. I'm going to make a million or I'm going to get my movie deal or it's going to change my life. It's going to change everyone's life. It may well change your life, uh, to be honest. But yes, you need so you need blind faith, but no false hope. The letter says, when you invent, you come up with new ideas that people will reject because they haven't been done before, which is where the blind faith comes in. But it's also important to step back and make sure you have a viable plan that will resonate with customers and avoid false hope. And again, this is what we have to do as authors. You do have to write that book, whatever that book is, on your heart. And I've always been someone who doesn't write to market, (laughs) at least with my fiction. Uh, And so I essentially I write the books that my muse wants to write. But then also we have to have a viable plan. We do have to have some kind of marketing plan. And if you don't know anything about marketing, you have to learn marketing. So all of these things have to be done. And then He also says, brace yourself for failure. If you invent a lot, you will fail more often than you wish. Nobody likes this part, but it comes with the territory. And I really like that too, because bracing yourself for failure means that you won't be as disappointed as you might have been. But equally, you still need to hold on to that blind faith. No one ever said, oh, I can't remember who said it, but this kind of idea of balance, balance isn't always being exactly balanced. It's a constant shifting from one foot to the other in order to stay upright. (laughs) But then there's a couple of things in the letter. He talks about adopting a long-term orientation. He says, you have to be in it for the long haul or you'll give up too quickly. And I, goodness, I've been saying this a lot lately to people. If you think that one book is enough, then that's not an author career. If you want to be successful as a creative, as a writer, 
with anything, look, it's with anything, with a marriage, with your family, with um, investments, with your health. Uh, I've just come from working out with my trainer, Dan, and I was reflecting on the fact that it was, you know, sort of two and a half years ago when I went to the shoulder specialist in absolute agony and got a like a steroid shot in my shoulder because I was in so much pain. And the specialist said to me at the time, if you do not change your practices you will be back here within six months and I'll have to give you another shot. And I was like, I am not going back to that. And I haven't. I'm really proud of it. We were talking about it today and we always do shoulder work. We always do weights for my back and all the things that if as a long-term writer are things that degrade unless you're constantly improving them. It's the same with our craft. You'll get better over time. And yeah, so I guess <laughs> um, you will have heard this before on my podcast, but long-term thinking, I consider possibly to be the most critical thing if you want any kind of career. So uh, Andy closes the letter with it remains day one, which is an attitude I've actually always loved about Amazon. And it's important for authors to remember too, because I've seen and heard comments. I've had comments left on my blog. I had people telling me this at London Book Fair. I've seen it in Facebook groups that new authors think that somehow they are too late, that because people might have missed the so-called Kindle gold rush, that it's impossible to build an audience, that they've missed out on cheap advertising, that they've missed out on this, that and the other. But you have to think, it's always day one for all of us. There are new technologies emerging, a new ecosystem with opportunities in Web3. The old ways are still great, you know, and the old ways still work. And for me, the old ways are write books, <laughs> build your intellectual property assets and email marketing, which is as old as like the internet <laughs> and content marketing, which for me, this podcast, um, blog, I started out blogging and now I pretty much only do audio, but content marketing, email marketing and creating intellectual property assets. These are actually nothing new. And you could almost say that email marketing is just another form of direct mail advertising, which is, you know, it was print before it was email. So look, there are always going to be brand new shiny object type things, but you don't have to do them. <laughs> you will notice I have still not gone anywhere near TikTok. And you you have to think about what can you sustain for the long term? That really is it. And since 2008, I guess, well, 2006, when I started writing, 2008, when I actually started publishing and, and putting um, blogging and everything, I have literally done those things, write books, do emails, do some form of content. And that's it. And by the way, I didn't benefit from the Kindle Gold Rush. I was still a new author at the time. And the authors who did really well in those early days had a backlist that they priced low, they undercut, like the people who hit the top of the charts suddenly arrived with 30 books that they got their rights back for from traditional publishing. They put them up at 99 cents. And those were the books that worked back then. But I was brand new and I didn't have the craft ability. I didn't have the... I didn't have any abilities, <laughs> but I did have a willingness to learn and a sense that it was always day one. And I still feel the same. Like literally everything is always changing. You are never too late unless you don't start. So yeah, and I like what they do every year on the Amazon shareholders letter because they always link to the very first Amazon shareholder letter dated 1997. And I'll just read a bit of 
what Jeff Bezos wrote in 1997 when Amazon obviously was not what it is today. It says, This is day one for the internet, and if we execute well for Amazon. Today, online commerce saves customers money and time. Tomorrow, through personalization, online commerce will accelerate the very process of discovery, which is, of course, what we have now based our um, writing discovery on, our, our reader discovery on. The letter says, We have a window of opportunity as larger players marshal the resources to pursue the online opportunity. And as customers new to purchasing online are receptive to forming new relationships. It's all about the long term. We believe that a fundamental measure of our success will be the shareholder value we create over the long term. Again, there's always a long term focus and this is what I come back to. I also want to just emphasise this. We have a window of opportunity. And I seriously believe that again with Web3. What indie authors have always done is jump into things early, try things out. And then what's so funny is I had a conversation with, um, and obviously all my conversations are remain private in those private situations, but this was someone within traditional publishing and basically saying that they're still trying to convince the traditional publishing industry to stop doing bookmarks and maybe consider online advertising. <laughs> and I was just like, whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> the realistically we've I don't know uh, many people who do bookmarks anymore but if you do bookmarks good on you but I presume you do other things too but if we are let's say we're 15 years ahead I guess or at least a decade ahead of many traditional publishers adopting digital marketing well then we have to think we where are we going to go in the next decade so that's what I'm thinking about and uh, I'm really think the the this is day one for the internet in 1997 is a is a interesting phrase because there are emerging opportunities in Web3. I've been talking about it for a few years now, I guess, and AI and uh, all kinds of things that are happening that are accelerating that will be the architecture of the next 10 years, the next 15 years. But also, equally, it's 25 years since that letter in 1997. 25 years ago, in 1997, I left university and I went to London and started working for Accenture. Now, um, no, it was Anderson Consulting back then. Now it's Accenture and started on my journey of becoming an IT consultant. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think 1997 is 25 years ago. And look at the transformation in the world. I mean, I got my first email. I mean, we still hand wrote essays back then uh, at university. The university got the first computers in in my final year in that 1997 year. And we started typing our essays. <laughs> It's kind of crazy. But I got my first email around that time. I certainly didn't get a mobile phone until I started my job. And uh, so it's kind of crazy to think that far back, look at the transformation in the world in the last 25 years and also in you. So that's my message for you this week, which is it remains day one. What will you do with this day? So in my personal update, I am well into how to write a novel. Well, I say well into it. It, it is essentially wrangling chaos. 
I have committed to it and I'm actually enjoying it now, which is a relief because uh, I, I kind of was dreading it. I have around 90,000 words in a Scrivener project, which I've been sort of adding to for years now. It's made up of transcripts and thoughts and articles and quotes and blog posts of my own for since uh, I've been writing about craft for years. And I've resisted this book for so long because of imposter syndrome, because what do I have to say about writing a novel Stephen King has on writing. James Patterson has a masterclass. You should go learn from them. But then I'm actually really happy to be doing it now. And doing those rewrites of my first three novels really helped me see that I might know something and hopefully can help you with... I mean, the whole point of craft books is people always just put another spin on things and sometimes it lands and helps. And yeah, so anyway, I'm enjoying it. I'm I'm enjoying thinking about the craft and trying to... You know, the best way to learn something is to put it into words and try and teach it. And that's how I'm approaching it. And as I said, I am enjoying it. I've also been back at my writing cafe, which is awesome. And in fact, this is another long term tip. I sit there in the morning. So it now opens at eight because people don't commute so much as pre pandemic used to open at seven. But now I'm there when it opens at eight. And by about nine, there's maybe 10 or 12 of us. It's quite a big cafe. And I am the only one using a laptop riser. I use a neck stand, N-E-X-T-A-N-D, and it's just a little portable stand and a separate keyboard. And I sit there with my ergonomic work uh, station and people, everyone else in the cafe just sits with their necks at terrible angle. So uh, yes, there's a tip if you are writing out of your home, make sure you have, or even in your home, make sure you have ergonomics sorted. Or let me tell you, as someone who's been doing computer work for way too long, (laughs) you will get bad back and shoulders. So yes, I'm doing that. And uh, so yeah, and I'm also expanding my Kickstarter plan. Definitely learning a lot at the moment about practical stuff. I'm going to do a special edition. I'm working with a designer trying to get different ideas for the special hardback print edition, which will be different to the print on demand edition. The core will be the same, obviously, but the special Kickstarter product which will be um, not available anywhere else, will uh, be quite special, hopefully, looking at foil and other things like that, which is fun. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Sue left a comment about Daniel's episode. This was great. I have a children's book written and I'm now waiting for the illustrator, my partner, who's an artist, to finish the pictures. I've been trying to figure out what to do next. So this has been really informative and inspiring. And Kristen Johnson on YouTube said, I'm so excited. Uh, I'm writing middle grade books and this has helped me know how to work with an illustrator and fantastic information about school visits. Thank you so much. And thanks to Bill, who sent me a picture from his car on the commute. He says, I listen in my car while commuting to and from work in the big city. Uh, who And Bill lives outside um, somewhere in Texas, a rural area, uh, I think near San Antonio in Texas. So very cool. You can always send me a picture of where you're listening uh, at The Creative Pen on Twitter. Email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or on the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. Kobo Writing Life was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. 
Kobo's author-first approach is one of the reasons they developed a promotions tool. And uh, we talked about the importance of having marketing in your uh, in your toolkit. This is an easy and affordable way for you to market your book directly to Kobo readers. It offers lots of promotions that don't require you to drop your price because when you're publishing wide, it can be a pain to coordinate pricing. Any promotions listed as a percentage off, for example, 40% VIP sale, you don't have to change your price as the discount will be provided via a promo code at checkout. If that sounds good to you, keep an eye out for percent off promotions and buy more, save more sales, where you can submit your titles and leave the rest to Kobo. And if you're taking part in a promotion, be sure to tell your readers all about it. The promotions tool is updated on a weekly basis, so make sure you're taking a regular look to see what's on offer and if there's an opportunity that matches your books and marketing plans. So on a personal note, I've been using Kobo for, I think, a decade at this point, and the promotions tab is one of the best ways to promote books on Kobo. If you're there and you're saying, oh, well, I don't sell many books on Kobo, well, do you have the promotions tab and are you going in regularly and submitting for promotion? So I have a a recurring to-do thing that pops up every three weeks, so I set it for three-week times and it pops up and it says go and submit to promotions on Kobo so every three weeks I log in and I submit to everything that my books are relevant for so I might submit to say four promotions of which maybe I'll get one of them and um Sometimes I won't get any of them. Sometimes I'll get more of them. And so I just find that you have to go in and submit for these things regularly. It only takes five minutes to go in, submit things. And yeah, super easy. And also uh, another tip, I find box sets are really good. I'm actually putting together my next Arcane box set at the moment, Arcane box set four, which will contain books 10 to 12. And uh, what's great on Kobo is they don't have a price cap at 9 unlike some other people. And so you can actually do mega, mega box sets. So I've got a nine book box set on Kobo and maybe I'll even do a 12 book box set. I'm thinking about that. So if you're a KWL author and so if you uh, publish direct on Kobo Writing Life and you don't have access to the promotion tool, email the team at writinglife at kobo.com and they'll enable it for you. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you're listening to this one, (laughs) or find them on social media. You can create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. Right, so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time is sponsored by my lovely patrons, and especially all the extra futurist stuff. Thanks to new patrons this week, Shaw Gravit and Naomi, and thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. You are all brilliant and you keep me going and you, yes, you are fantastic. If you would like to support the show, you will get an extra Q&A show every month and I'll be recording it next week I guess <laughs> at this point so you can support the show with there are many currencies so think about it as buying me a coffee or something a month and go just go to patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen right let's get into the interview Jesse Quack is the author of gangster sci-fi, supernatural thrillers, and non-fiction for creatives. She's also a ghostwriter and freelance marketing copywriter. Her latest book is From Big Idea to Book, Create a Writing Practice That Brings You Joy. So welcome back to the show, Jesse. Thank you for having me. This is super fun. 
Oh, yes. Always good to talk to you. So you've been on the show before and we talked a bit about your journey and how you manage everything. So we're just going to get straight into the topic today. Now, I should say up front, this is it's a really great book. There's so much in it and I found it very hard to choose the questions. But I wanted to start with the plotting versus discovery writing, because there's this tension for both fiction and nonfiction. But you say in the book that every author plans, but the extent to which they plan differs. So talk about that and and how we can find the best way for our writing style. Well, I think there's... There tends to be a lot of emphasis on what's the the right way to write. Should I outline? Am I supposed to be doing this or that or the other thing? And so I guess my very first piece of advice as we get into talking about writing advice <laughs> is don't really worry about what's right. Start with what your strengths are. Start with what you enjoy about the process and start experimenting from there. Definitely don't throw out the things that you enjoy just because you're like, oh, I read in a book that I'm supposed to do it a different way. So when I talk about planning, I really came to writing as a pantser and I didn't do a lot of outlining. I would try it and then I would just immediately go in a weird direction as soon as I started writing. I'm very much a discovery writer. And unless I am literally like typing or putting pencil to paper and writing out a scene, I don't know what is going to come out of that scene. Doesn't matter how much I outline. But I have tried to incorporate a lot more planning into my discovery process. Like, for example, you don't have to plot out the whole book, but maybe you could plot out this act that you're working on or the first half of a book. My mind was blown at a a conference a few years back when another author was like, oh, I I only ever plot out the first half of any book because my outline always goes off the rails. It's like, oh, (laughs) you can do that. (laughs) Or you could try planning at the scene level. And that's something that I find really helps me. So just taking five minutes to jot out, this is what I want to do with the scene, some sensory details, kind of basic scene blocking of who goes where and does what. And if you're, if you are a heavy planner, maybe experiment with giving your little, yourself a little bit more flexibility, experiment with how you are coming up with that outline. Are you going into a spreadsheet and plotting out every detail or are you, you know, try being maybe a little bit more freeform and see if, if that helps at all. And if it doesn't, that's fine. You don't have to, you can be the spreadsheet outliner or you can be the complete pantser, but playing with what other people do, I think can really help. And it's interesting because I, I feel, I mean, you've been on the show talking about productivity and I know how much work you get done. I mean, you're incredibly organized in your nonfiction side. I mean, but for me, I feel like we've got a lot in common in our nonfiction, but I feel like with my fiction, I am a discovery writer, but I, I, I'm so different with my fiction than I am with my nonfiction. So I wondered if that's the same with you. Is, is it, are you a completely different Jesse when you do fiction to nonfiction? You know, Yes, I am. I definitely am more relaxed and just sort of letting the words flow and not not being so detailed in the the very first draft when I'm writing fiction. Whereas with nonfiction, I tend to be a lot more outliney. You know, I, I write a lot of kind of blog posts and articles. And so in that case, you do really want to say, okay, here's the three points I'm going to make. And then I'm going to flesh out each chapter or each, sorry, each, you know, section. But with fiction, I I will let myself wander a lot more. 
Yeah, it's interesting that. And I feel like the word plan can be a difficult word. Uh, I certainly find it difficult with fiction because I feel like I just, uh, my muse wants to do what it does. But equally, it's funny you mentioned that person who plots the first half of the book because I plan, I guess in my head, I know the opening scene, which is always something. I like a prologue, action adventure thriller. I like a prologue where something bad happens. And then chapter one, we see the protagonist. And so I always have that prologue, that sort of what is the sort of set piece in some awesome location. And then I often will have, uh, pretty much always have my um, climax, which is another set piece in another awesome location. And then (laughs) it's the middle bit. (laughs) It's everything in between that just kind of wanders around. So even the whole idea of planning, it can just be, it doesn't matter, does it? It, It's whatever works for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for me, I will kind of plot out the I, I'm using a five-act structure for my books, the series that I'm working on right now. And so I kind of have like the the thing that happens at the end of each act for all five acts. Like, where are we going to commercial break here? <laughs> I know kind of what's happening there. And beyond that, I do just sort of plot out at an act level. And I say, okay, in this act, we're going to do this. And I sort of know some things that are happening ahead of here. But the thing that I find is I can't, I can't keep going once unless I have a a good, strong back, like, what am I trying to say? A good, strong foundation of what I've written before. So I tend to cycle through a book. Like I will write act one. I give it to my husband. He reads it. He gives me some feedback. I rewrite it. Then I write act two and do the same thing. And I was actually, I was at a writing retreat this weekend and there was like a word count competition among everybody. And so I had to write acts four and five. And I was like, you know what? I'm at the end of the book. I know what's going to happen. I will just write as fast as I can and I'm going to win this competition. But I got to the end of act four and I got stuck and I couldn't write anymore in act five. And I was like, oh, you just have to do your process, Jesse. <laughs> you can't force it. <laughs> like, so just, and that's, a, I think, an example of experimentation, but start with your strengths and don't throw your strength out, which for me is this kind of cycling process. Yes. And that is really a good point. I would hate that word count contest. And I almost feel that's what happens in NaNoWriMo as well. You know, there's some people who always do like 50,000 words in one day or something. And oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I've only done NaNoWriMo once back in uh, originally when I started Staying a Fire and I only, in inverted commas, wrote 20,000 words in a month and only about 5,000 of those ended up in the book. And my strength is not hardcore words um, done, but it's interesting you were on a writer's retreat and they were presumably assuming that you could just write a lot of words. And isn't this one of the issues in the writing community is that we compete on things that aren't necessarily our strengths? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as you, like there was the word count board that was going up every day and you saw one woman, she wrote 40,000 words in like the four days that we were there. And I was just like, well, as soon as I saw her numbers going up, I was like, well, there's no, there's I'm no just going to give up here. now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, it is. That is it. But okay, well, then I guess word count might kind of come into my next question. And you have a great section on ideas. And I know some people struggle with ideas, but let's assume people have lots of ideas. How can we flesh an idea into a story? And also, how do we know what that story is? So is it a short story? Or is it a series or a standalone? Or so, you know, we've got an idea Let's say the, did you see the wreck of the, of Shackleton's ship just got discovered? Oh yeah. 
Yeah. So that everyone I know, I mean, as obviously I'm like, wow, that's cool. What kind of story could that be? So how do we take a seed of an idea and, and flesh that out? One thing that works really well for me is kind of free writing about it or journaling on it. Just that getting away from the computer and playing with the idea on paper until it kind of starts expanding and unfolding. Another thing that I've been experimenting with lately is using tarot cards. And that was partly inspired by your podcast with Carolyn Donahue, I think it was from a Mm. few years back. And it gives you this sort of interesting imagery that will combine with maybe the idea you had and spark your brain going in a bunch of different directions. So those are two tools that I, I tend to use when it comes to fleshing out an idea. Another really good thing to try is kind of like keeping a collection file, whether that's on your computer or whether that's articles you might physically cut out of a newspaper or images you might print out and just sort of collecting this imagery and words and ideas in one place and kind of watching that sort of accrete and grow over time. That can be a really interesting way of of building a building on a single story idea that you might have and just being inspired by the world around you. I have that file on my, I use the things app and I'm just always, always finding stuff. It might be links to an article or it might be a quote, or it might be just what about this? Or so I keep lots and lots of notes and that's just on my phone. And I mean, I have journals and things, but they're almost fragments, aren't they? Like snippets that you find in the world. Yeah. And I think it's really fun to see how those start to combine and grow on each other. It's almost like throwing a bunch of seeds in a garden and then seeing what starts to pop up, except that with writing, the seeds will like join with each other and come up with a weird hybrid. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And that's what originality really is, isn't it? Because of course it's not original, like romance, somebody meets somebody or more than one somebody and there's trouble and then they all get together or whatever. That's not original. What's original is all the little things we add Mm -hmm. to make it our work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's just come back to the Shackleton idea, because I want us to try and give an example. So if people, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but essentially Shackleton's lost ship was found last week in the Antarctic. And this is an undiscovered shipwreck 107 years after it disappeared. This is very cool, right? So this is, um, I'm sure it's an idea for lots of people. That's why I'm going to put it out there. But if we had that seed of an idea, so underwater wreck rediscovered, How would we know or how would we turn that into, let's say, a short story or how would we turn that into something much bigger? I think one of the things, one of the skills that you start to acquire as an author is knowing how much story can fit in a container. (laughs) And this is something that I had to learn and it took me forever to figure out, you know, I'd try to write a short story and I would try to include okay, here's this big geopolitical event. And then here's like this international like scandal. And then here's this, this person also has a conflict with like their father and then their boyfriend's breaking up with them or whatever. I'm trying to write a 2000 word short story with all of that. That's not going to work. So I think if you were going to take the Shackleton's ship idea and asking yourself, if you wanted to write a short story, what is one of the smallest problems that could come that my protagonist could have about this? Say if you were writing a scientist who's discovering it, you could write a novel about the office politics and the international concern over who's who found the ship and who should own the ship and 
have a his, huge history and you could have these backstory of in, involving Shackleton's like flashbacks to Shackleton's journey and things like that. Or you could say, okay, my protagonist, this is their very first expedition and they really need to prove themselves because of X, Y, or Z. And how does this event help them either accomplish that goal or change their goal into something else? And to just narrowing your focus into that, how biggest problem you're trying to solve in a single story, I think can really help scale your idea up or down. And also the number of characters that you absolutely, yeah. So, like you said, so let's just take a deep sea scuba diver, or you know, whatever, or sub submariner. I'm not quite sure how deep it is, uh, but let's say a submariner, and they're piloting the ship, and it's going to go down. And a short, the short story is potentially there was a there was an emergency, and they have to overcome their fear or something like that. Um, in my head, I, I've obviously put because I like quest, action, adventure, thrillers. I'm I, in my head, the not longer novel idea is, you know, the submariner goes down and they find a box in the wreck and they get mm-hmm. the box back up and they open the box and they find a map and thus begins adventure through Antarctica. But then there's more people, there's more plot points, and immediately you get something much bigger than 2,000 words. So, yes, as you say, what's the smallest story unit that you can make with this idea? I personally think the Shackleton thing is probably going to be novel size. What do you reckon? <laughs> Yeah, probably. Well, especially if we were working on this book together, I would say the the map is actually leading to some sort of alien artifact. And I'm going to throw the sci-fi element in there. <laughs> and now we're going to have this like big <laughs> intergalactic thing that happens. So definitely a novel. Okay, that's good. I mean, obviously, coming back to your book, it is from big idea to book. I do think that we've just come up with what is possibly a big idea. <laughs> <laughs> anyone listening are welcome to turn into a book and I think this is another thing isn't it about attitude you and I've been doing this long enough we met years ago now and in, in Oregon and I feel like when you've been doing this long enough you don't mind or you're happy to throw out ideas because like even if you and I both wrote those books that we just talked about they'd be completely different and so it's almost like ideas ideas um, are abundant I guess yeah yeah I really think so and I mean, I, there are definitely ideas that I have stolen from other people or, or borrowed or whatever, whatever the polite artistic term would be. <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I, I don't have time to write everything that I might possibly have an idea for. So if I read a book where somebody found this alien artifact in the Shackleton ship and ran with it and, I, and they were like, oh, I listened to your podcast. I'd be like, awesome. Cause I wanted to read that story, but I don't have time to write it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Although, I mean, even if six thriller writers took it and had the box and opened the box, I bet we'd all put different things in the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's actually a good writing prompt to everyone listening. What is in the box? <laughs> yeah, that could be a fun anthology. <laughs> actually, that's a good point. Yeah, we could do a Shackleton anthology. But the, this is this is what's so fun about story ideas. And, and this is what I think I, I want people to consider. Anything you look at could turn into a story and you get to decide the angle, right? I mean, and we all just have, like you picked an alien and I'm never going to write about aliens. I say never, but who knows, but I'm not into (laughs) sci-fi, but you went that way. I went to the thriller side and and that's a sort of personal choice of ideas too, isn't it? Right. It's the interest that you bring to it, but then it's also your, your past experience and what the things that you see in the world are going to be different than the things that I see in the world. Just the details that you're going to notice the emotional response you're going to bring to it. 
And that's what I think is so, so fascinating about writing. You can literally, I mean, there's everyone's retelling fairy tale stories, right? There's so many fairy tale retellings and all of them are so different. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I don't read those, to be honest, but (laughs) I I know what you mean. I mean, even let's just take something that's at the cinema right now. The Batman. I mean, seriously, (laughs) how come they are just rebooting this again? But yet you could say it's a nightmare. They're still doing the same idea over and over again. But on the other hand, they are all different. Like they are different characters. They are different um, sort of themes and, and all of that. So, yes, we can take these ideas and do different things. But you also have a great section on mindset. I mean, we've kind of touched on mindset, but let's say we've got this brilliant Shackleton story and we write it down and inevitably our words just don't come out the way we want, especially on the first pass. They're like, oh, this is terrible. So how can we deal with that critical voice that says everything you do is terrible at the same time as also balancing that with improving? Right. Well, this is, I I would on occasion throw out questions to other writers as I was working on this book. And this was one that I, I threw out on Twitter and said, okay, how do we, how does everyone deal with critical voice? And I got the most responses to this question because it's something everyone deals with, right? One of my favorite things people would do is just like put a sticky note on their laptop that said like, this is a discovery draft, or this is my bad writing. This, and just so you see it and you're like, okay, right. I, this doesn't have to be good. Or practicing bad writing was another thing that I, I kept hearing from people, like the idea of doing morning pages and just letting yourself write badly and doing it in like a cheap journal or something where it's not your beautiful leather bound journal where all the words have to be preserved for for posterity. And so just kind of letting yourself, giving yourself that mental cue that, okay, it's okay to write badly here. One thing that I like is using a different tool. Like I mentioned the cheap notebook. I can't, if if you give me a beautiful notebook, I am just instant writer's block. But give me like a little spiral bound notebook and I can write forever. Or the um, Alpha Smart Neo, one of those little word processors that they used to use in school that doesn't have a screen and it just has a few lines of text and gets you away from where you write your finished product and puts you in a space where you are just going to the word mines and pulling out the words that you can use to build the finished product later. That's kind of how I like to look at it. I'm putting sand in the sandbox and then I will build the sandcastle. But you you can't build the sandcastle without the sand first. Yeah. I mean, I use Scrivener to write and I feel like it's about trust in the process. And also, once you've been through this creative cycle enough times, you know that critical voice is just part of the process. And so Mm -hmm. it's almost like you have to learn to write alongside it as opposed to try and banish it. So we don't say go away forever. We say, okay, trust the process and critical voice comes in when we edit. So that's fine. And also I, I personally, I don't use beta readers. I use professional editors. So I feel like as part of my process, I will always have someone who will stop it being terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I it's agree. Like, so yeah. it's finding a process that means that, that saves you from thinking that, that, that awfulness will go out in the world. Yeah, I do. I find myself very often when I'm at a a place where I'm like, oh, this this doesn't feel like it's sparkly and amazing prose. And I'm like, you know what? This is still going to my editor. Kira's going to look at it. She's going to fix things. And then I will have one more chance to do a pass and make it like beautiful and gleaming. And I'm just like, okay, this is where I stop and send it on. So yeah, having a professional editor who you trust is amazing. 
No, I totally agree. And let's let's stick with editing because you talk about rediscovering and developing the core idea in your draft during this editing and revision. And uh, I find this interesting because, in fact, I think Stephen King talks about this in On Writing, the <laughs> the, the, right. the book everyone needs to read, uh, which is the sort of that the theme emerges later. I mean, some authors obviously decide on a theme and then write something to a theme, but I'm definitely one of those who's like, I don't even know what's happening until later as a discovery writer. But how do you, or what do you mean by rediscovering and developing the core idea? I, yes, I definitely agree with Stephen King about the theme emerging later as you're, you know, either in the revision process or maybe near the end of the book. That's often where I'm like, wow, I've used this getting swept away by the sea metaphor a lot of times. Maybe my theme is about your life destabilizing and how do you fix that? Interesting. One thing I find helps is kind of getting some distance from the book and from the actual words that are on the page and start thinking about the story more as a whole. So one way you can do that is printing out your first draft and then reading through it with a cup of tea and a journal, like not a red pen, you're not editing, you're just you're writing down what you're noticing as you're reading through. Or telling a story to a friend can be another really helpful way to do that. One thing that I really love is uh, writing your back cover copy and just saying, okay, this is what the story is about. It also kind of helps you focus in on what readers you're going after as well. And again, at this writing retreat I was at this weekend, one woman said that she always writes a review of her book, just like a professional reviewer would. And she used to work as a professional reviewer. So that's kind of her method anyways. But she writes about, here's the strengths of the book. You know, here's why you're going to love it. You know, it was a little lackluster over here, but this author is really more her more drawn to this sorts of things. And I love that because she includes both the like highlights and the like, nah, this is maybe where the book fell down a little bit because it's, you can't do everything perfectly all the time and you're not trying to read for everyone. And it, to be able to say, okay, this book isn't necessarily for readers of like Ian Banks who want these big, weird sci-fi ideas. But if you love like great characters and kind of fast paced, twisty plots, you're really going to love these books. And it helps you think, okay, or me at least, because speaking specifically of my books, I'm like, okay, I don't have to be Ian Banks. My reviewers love my characters. They don't care about the like, Mm. did I invent this crazy new alien species? Yeah. And that's really important is focusing in. And again, like we said, it's about your curiosity and what you enjoy as a reader and, and the experience you like to deliver in your books. I mean, I picked Shackleton there because I just read an undersea thriller. I love undersea thrillers. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, God, it's an idea for, for an under, I've written a number of short stories un, underwater and it's like, okay, that's really cool. And we have to keep tapping into that, what we love. And I like that you kind of say develop the core idea because it's in that editing process that you can go and layer in some more symbols or some more backstory or sort of foreshadowing anything that helps layer on that core idea not so it's really obvious and on the nose but it just is is adding things in to make it richer I guess and and deepen it yeah you're just adding in more little layers of of notes and color and and things that just create a, a richer deeper experience as people are reading through actually in have you seen the crown on Netflix? No, I haven't. 
Oh, okay. Well, it's, you know, obviously a big series on Netflix, but we just watched the four, the four series right now. I've watched it for the second time. And what we noticed on the second way through is how much metaphor they layer in the background of the scenes. <laughs> and I'm learning a lot about storytelling from it because of the way they're using visuals in the background. You know, like they might have a discussion about sort of Princess Diana while someone is slaughtering a, <laughs> a, a beast. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, and you're like, okay, I can see the the metaphor. And when you can see it, it feels heavy, but we didn't see it the first time around. And I feel like in our books, it's good to layer in things that perhaps people don't notice as they read through, but they can, it comes through in the visual effects we're using and the dialogue we're using. And I mean, that, that we're talking about real craft here, I know, but that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about now, trying to deepen my books in, in that way. Yeah, I, I interviewed Rachel Heron for this book and she talked I specifically about editing with her because she's so good at it and has spoken quite a bit about it. And one of the things that she said was, you know, if she is writing a book where the theme is say a mother-daughter relationships and she has a scene where the characters are walking through a mall and talking about something, she might have in the original draft written a couple teenagers like goofing off in the background, but instead why not have it be a mom with a little girl toddler who's pulling away from her hand and racing away while the mom's calling after her? Like that's the thematic element that she's trying to get at. So even this little scene in the background, oh wait, here's a place where I can layer that in a little bit better. That's exactly right. And Rachel is a genius. <laughs> she is. <laughs> and everyone should go listen to her podcast. Uh, so the book is fantastic. But I also wanted to talk about how you published it because you're a hybrid author with indie and traditionally published books. This book is out with Microcosm Publishing. And I noticed because, of course, I had to have a copy and I was like, wow, there's some really nice art in here from this publishing house, which I've not seen before. And it's out of Portland in Oregon. So presumably it's quite funky. Uh, and you did a Kickstarter <laughs> for it, which we're going to talk about. But tell us about the pros and cons of working with a small press and why you decided to go that way? Yeah, I have nothing but amazing things to say about microcosm publishing. They are, like you said, they're very funky. They have kind of uh, this like DIY punk aesthetic. And they originally started, I think, almost about 30 years ago. And the, the founder, Joe Beal, he basically would create zines and then like bike with them on the back of his bike to like a punk bar and then sell them off the counter at the punk bar. And so from there, he built this incredible tiny little publishing empire. And he and his partner, Ellie Blue, they're both incredibly business savvy people. And they they obviously, as you mentioned, do they fantastic design work, really cool little artwork inside all the books. They run their own distribution. They've got like a dedicated sales team that's like working to get books into obviously bookstores, but also unique places like gift shops, because they have a lot of books that would be a good, a good gift sort of thing. So a store that might sell plants, they also will have like microcosms books on how to garden, things like that. And so one of the reasons that I started working with them, A, I was friends with Ellie. And so when I brought up the idea for this book, I'd been thinking about self-publishing it. And she was like, that sounds like something that would be perfect for microcosm. And we'd love to take this book if you want want to publish it. Or as, sorry, actually speaking of From Chaos to Creativity, which was the first book I published with them. And I immediately said yes, because I know 
I, I'm a freelancer as my half day job and a fiction writer as my other half day job. And I'm already split between these two worlds and I'm spending all this time trying to build up my fiction audience. I knew realistically, I don't have time to try to build a nonfiction audience as well in this kind of creative productivity space. And I certainly don't have time to try to get call bookshops and gift shops all around the world and try to get my books in there. So I just knew working with Microcosm, they were going to be able to promote this book way better than I ever could. So it was kind of a no-brainer in that case with them. And that's so interesting because basically what you've said is I've got these two brands, your freelance brand and your fiction brand, and you just could not do another brand essentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people do ask me about how many pen names should you have? And I often say I struggle enough with two, with JF Pen for my fiction and Joanna Pen for my nonfiction. And it sounds like a similar issue in a sense. And you were kind of thinking, well, I just can't do more under almost another brand, even if it's the same name. But I think that's so fascinating because that's not a reason I've heard, although I guess you could say it's, I don't want to do the marketing. So does that mean they're doing all the marketing or obviously you're doing this interview, but are you doing other marketing for them? Essentially all the marketing that I'm doing is this kind of publicity stuff. So podcasts or writing articles for different places. I still do some really kind of small amount of content marketing to build this creative productivity brand. But yeah, they're doing any sort of advertising, any, like they've got a, a big newsletter there at events, pushing my books in person. They're they're doing all the marketing in that aspect. It's interesting. Would you ever consider a, a small press or, or a big publisher for your fiction? I think for my fiction at this point, I would consider a big publisher. Um, I think a small press, I don't know that they could do it better than what I'm doing for myself because that is, you know, I am doing that for myself. Whereas I just, I mean, I, I feel like I could do a, a decent job with the content marketing and stuff for the nonfiction if I was really focused on it. But again, with the distribution microcosm, just they have me beat completely. There's no way that I could get that level of distribution for at least for physical books. But yeah, for fiction, I think the place that I would look for a hybrid publishing opportunity in fiction would be a, a larger publisher, sorry, a larger publisher who would have a bigger audience and be able to kind of promote my books in ways that I can't get to at this point. But I think a small press with fiction, I don't, I don't know if that would be the right fit. And that that idea of fit is really interesting because essentially you've assessed what you can do and what your strengths are. And then you've looked for a partner who can do things that you can't. And I, I really feel this is what we need to be doing as, as indies now. I've come to this realization. I keep coming to it, but we cannot do everything ourselves. We want to be independent, but that doesn't mean working alone, does it? I mean, we, we work with other people to achieve our goals. Yeah, absolutely. And working with somebody who was on the same page as you, I think is really important that I feel very aligned from a philosophical standpoint and from a indie writer sort of standpoint with the team at Microcosm. They do look, as I said, super funky. <laughs> <laughs> They're fantastic. They have yeah. so many fun books. They're doing a bunch of like queer werewolf erotica right now. <laughs> and it's just like, it's awesome. Everything they do is so fun. 
Oh, that is. Uh, and also the Kickstarter. So you did or they did a Kickstarter and you did a little video for it. And what, what's so funny as we talk right now, Brandon Sanderson's epic Kickstarter is still running and it's like over 25 million or something. Uh, so I feel like a lot of authors now want to do Kickstarter, but also I feel it might be easier with nonfiction to get some traction because it's kind of obvious what you're going to get. Whereas fiction, you really need to be a fan. I mean, like I've, I've got a book right here uh, that I supported on Kickstarter that I don't know the author at all, have no connection with the author. It's just I like the title and it's a nonfiction business book. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to try that. So tell us about the Kickstarter and any tips for that. Um, Well, as you mentioned, it was really Microcosm that did the Kickstarter. So I I don't want my first tip to be have somebody who can do it for you well, but um, (laughs) that's a good tip though. They do, they kickstart all of their new books and it's kind of their way of pre-ordering, getting pre-orders out for their books and building their audience. So they've been doing this for forever. So essentially all I needed to do, I went down to their office and recorded a little video and they were like, do you want to, why don't you just like go dance and twirl in among the books? I'm like, sweet, let's do it. So it was a really, really fun, silly video. And then I was also promoting it to my own audience. So that's kind of the, the aspect that I did. One of the things with Kickstarter, because we did this for both big idea, big idea to book and then from chaos to creativity, kind of having having stretch goals that kind of that can get people excited. Like for example, with from chaos to creativity, we added on a workbook halfway through because we were brainstorming ideas for a stretch goal. And that workbook, I think, was super, super popular. We didn't end up doing that with from big idea to book. I don't know if it would have worked out in the same way. But we the stretch goal that we did for that one was, um, I think it was like, if we got to 300 backers, then we'd people could be eligible to have a Zoom call with me and I do a little presentation. And we didn't quite make it there. And I think it just wasn't as exciting to people. I mean, we're all on Zoom all day long. So maybe that was part of it. Everyone's like, oh, Zoom. But yeah, coming up with something that adds more value in maybe a more tangible way than say the hangout obviously wasn't as as valuable. That that's one tip. So I've I've just looked it up on Kickstarter. There, so there were two hundred and eighty one backers pledging over nine thousand US dollars to bring that to life. So I think that's brilliant because we hear the Brandon Sanderson twenty five million or whatever, and we think that's what you have to do. <laughs> But what this is essentially, as you said, this is pre-orders on a non-fiction book. And okay, so it exceeded the goal of 7,000. So do you know what what kind of how they put those numbers on it? Do they normally do that kind of $7,000 or is the idea to kind of set it low enough that it will fund regardless? I think the idea is to set it low enough that it funds regardless because we said there, it is kind of more of a pre-order and it's the book's coming out. It's not a will we, won't we, but they also try to make it a little bit of a challenge. So I'm not sure exactly what goes into how they set the numbers, but we did with From Chaos to Creativity, I believe the original number was 4,000 and we more than doubled that. So I think they were like, well, if we more than doubled it, let's almost more than double the next book because she's already got an audience. There's already a little bit of buzz around it. So I think they they go into, I mean, they make sure they're, they're covering their production costs and all of that sort of thing, but they're always, they are trying to make it a bit of a challenge and not just, oh, it's $400. Let's see if we can fund that quote unquote. 
Yeah, exactly. And in just looking at it, what's interesting is they've used the page for your book to also include links to loads of other books that they've got on different things. So that's kind of how I feel about Kickstarter. It's almost like this ecosystem that if you start building an audience there and then you put out multiple projects, then it does compound over time. So you got the benefit with this latest one. You got the benefit of all the ones that have come before in terms of picking up people every time. So I almost think that when we, if we think about Kickstarter, which I am, (laughs) that it it can't just be a one-off, that you almost have to have a a plan to do others in the future. Yeah. And, you know, the the idea of kind of working with other people on this, like whether that's getting people to donate an ebook that you can use as part of the, the Kickstarter reward, or in one case, a friend of mine did a Kickstarter recently where each week he had a different like subscriber bonus. And so if you signed up in the first week, then you got all four of these extra eBooks that friends of his had donated. And if you signed up in week two, you got the three of them. And so one of them went away every week. So it increased this like, oh, I got to get in early so I can get all of these little rewards. Hmm, That is a good tip. So we're almost out of time, but I actually just want to come back to the book because the subtitle is Creative Writing Practice That Brings You Joy. And I feel like the word joy can be difficult for some people to associate with writing because it can (laughs) feel like it's difficult or it's a struggle or it has to be really important. So having joy might be difficult. So what are your final tips around that joy um, and finding joy in the writing? It goes back to letting go of what you think you should be doing, how you think you should be writing, and what the outcome of your writing is going to be. I think most of us got into writing because we liked telling stories or we wrote stories as kids. And I mean, I certainly did when I was a kid and I was writing stories. It wasn't so I could make a bestseller list or pay my mortgage. (laughs) And I find the times when I'm so frustrated with writing are when I'm looking at a book and being like, okay, is this going to sell? Is this going to pay the mortgage? And if you can let that outcome go and just focus on what do I love about this? Oh, I love dialogue. I love when the characters come alive and that sparkles. How can I get more of that? Because in the end, you can't control outcomes. You can certainly do your best to market your book and sell your book, but The only thing you can control is your daily process, and that's where you're going to be spending your most time. So I really, really encourage you to think, how are you spending your days writing? And do you want to still be that happy or that miserable (laughs) five years from now as you're still working on your writing career? Because it takes a while. Absolutely does. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? find everything at jessiequack.com. That's J-E-S-S-I-E-K-W-A-K. So everything's there. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. And basically, if you Google me, I'm the only Jessie Quack you'll find in like 10 pages of Google results. So (laughs) I'm easily findable. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Jessie. That was great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joanna. So I hope you found the interview with Jessie interesting and that it gave you some ideas for your writing craft, or at least helped you see that you are not alone on the creative roller coaster that is the writing life. Coming up this week, I have an in-between-isode on creating a fictional world in Web3 with Ray Wojcik and Stephen Pointer. 
where we talk about how storytelling could possibly expand into more of a community movement and how those business models might work. Next Monday is back to craft again as I discuss seven-figure fiction with Theodora Taylor. And I know many of you will have read her book of the same name, uh, which I loved. And so I'm really pleased to have her on the show. In the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.